Good afternoon, guys, gals, and non-binary pals, and welcome to another episode of Blether Together, your weekly breakdown of news and politics from around Scotland and the world. My name is Stephen Payton, and I'm representing The National today. Joining me in the studio is Angela Haggerty from Common Space. Uh, and our guest today is Dr. Craig Dial, who is also from Commonweal, but has specialties in many other areas, all of which are relevant, and also lasers, <laughs> if I'm correct. Yeah, so, um, yeah, thank you both for joining me today um, in the studio. Uh, and thank you as well for tuning in to watch. As always, we do want to hear what you're thinking throughout the show, so please do leave comments down below throughout. We will be reading them. Uh, hello to everyone who's already said hi. It's really nice to get such a positive response immediately. Um, and uh, also, please do give us a wee share if you can as well to help us reach a broader audience. Now, if you cannot tune in on time at 3 p.m. every Thursday when we hold the show, you can now subscribe to us in the iTunes store where we have a weekly app, which is just the Blether Together podcast, which will go out after the live broadcast every week. So if you miss us here, you can always get us there. I do recommend doing that. And we've got some nice new microphones as well, so everything should sound better. Yeah. Um, yeah. Either that or we're actually robots and we're, we're being hooked up to the machinery here. Don't give away the secrets. It's meant to be like, <laughs> keep it on the down low. Uh, yeah, so other than us I may or may, were, may be... I thought you were going to have a go at everyone when you said, if you can't tune in every Thursday at 3 o'clock, then why not? Yeah, it's just, if you what can't tune in... What are you doing? Isn't there, like, le, like do, do you have more else? important things to be doing yeah. than hearing these hot political opinions every week at 3pm on Thursday. Hot political opinions by a hot political trio. That's it. Um, I know. So <laughs> that's the tagline right there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but our hot political opinions and hot political trio aside, uh, this was an interesting week. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's not like we have had anything even close to not an interesting week recently to the point where I'm so tired <laughs> and I just would like a small break from hot political news. Do you ever keeping feel on that like theme. you're being pu punished for something? Like we got a bank holiday weekend and it's like we had to pay for it. You know, you come back to work on Tuesday, <laughs> general election. Like I, I really, I was just feeling relaxed. I was just starting to, to wind down, chill out a little bit. Or even, or even like you know, we have we have a whole Scottish independence referendum. Everyone gets a little taste of, you know, what what democracy could be, and now we just are like, uh, stop, please, please, we've gone too far. No, but of course, um, Theresa May announced this week that there would be a snap general election on June the eighth. Um, basically, looking to in her eyes reinforce the majority of Tory MPs in the. UK Parliament. So at the moment there are only 17 MPs in terms of like a majority for the Tory party, but recent polls suggest that w through this election they could increase that to about 112, basically putting them in a position of uh, they can do whatever they want, uh, which nobody really wants. A slight, just a side before we go on, who I really feel sorry for about this as well was that it was like 11.15 was the announcement, actually it came a wee bit earlier than that, 11.15 on the same day, whereas at 11 o'clock Scottish Labour launched their local election manifesto. <laughs> and it's just like, I can just imagine them all sitting in the room as the news comes in and everyone's on their phones, just like, no, no, <laughs> not today. Um, as, as they see all of the effort gone for that launch just disappearing down the drain and no one even knowing that it happened. Poor, poor Scottish yeah, Labour. Yeah, I felt, I felt for Kezi as a deal. I mean, that, that, at that point, I would be smashing the windows. Yeah. Just like, just exasperated. Un understandable. Um, so, so very frustrating. But, um, but so, Craig, obviously, you're, you're a bit of an expert yeah. in constitutional politics. Do you, can you can you walk us through a little bit of, I guess, sort of the um, the logistics of how this can happen and how it's going to how it's going to work? Um, well, 
you, you, you mentioned that with a majority of a hundred odd, the Tories can do whatever they want. They've got a majority of 17. They can do that right now. Yeah. They didn't need this election to try and bolster their numbers to get that majority. Uh, so, so what's while, it really about then? Well, while they'll never pass up the chance to give Labour a, a good kicking while they're on the floor, that wasn't the primary pur purpose of this, I don't think. I think there's maybe a little bit of a tension within the Conservative Party uh, to do with Brexit. Maybe Theresa May didn't have quite the full faith of some of the, her remaining Tory MPs and needs to buck up some numbers. But wasn't Brexit supposed to fix the last internal problem in the Tory party? I mean, are we <laughs> just going to keep having elections and referendums while the Tories try and sort themselves out? It's quite interesting that how much uh, UK politics revolves around internal Tory factionalism. Mm. Quite scary. <laughs> yeah, and and we'll actually welcome back to that. Um, but no, you're, you're you're right. It's um this this snap election isn't necessarily about reinforcing um the the number of Tory MPs because they they do have a majority already. Yeah. It, it really seems it's about basically finding a way to quash any people complaining about the Brexit that we're moving towards. Because when we went and voted, there was no idea of what Brexit was going to be. It was just Brexit means Brexit, and then it was a red, white, and blue Brexit. And now we know it's probably going to be a hard Brexit. Realistically, Theresa May is going to walk away with nothing. Um, and and it, it sort of feels like this election is about saying, this is the Brexit we're having. Vote us back in again when they're already very popular south of the border and know they'll get those votes. Mm. Um, and really, basically, so that from now on, whenever anyone's like, wow, can we maybe try a soft Brexit? Can we maybe try the single market approach? They can turn around and go, hey... We, we did it. We had the votes and we're doing this Brexit the way we I've heard to. the other analysis, though, that actually what Theresa May is trying to do is, is, get, um, is get the hard Brexiteers in line so she can go for a softer Brexit. And apparently EU sources seem to think that that's what would happen. There's, mm. It so kind of goes sure. both ways on this. I think she's probably going to have to soften on some parts, which will annoy the hard Brexiteers. She's probably going to have to harden on other parts of the deal as well, mm. which will annoy the moderates. Mm -hmm. She is in quite a difficult place uh, within her own party on this. Yeah. And it is purely down to just a lack of planning because we've come this far with nothing more than Brexit means Brexit. You know, we're... we're we're walking into negotiations without a, without a clue, without a plan. But does that mean, um, so obviously the selection process is now taking place for who's going to be standing in yeah. those seats. I mean, do you think the Tories are going to pop out some of the extreme hard Brexiteers or some of the softer Brexiteers? I, I would be watching their, their selection very closely to, to see if that happens. Hmm. I don't know which way it'll go. So it could, it could go either way? It could. Or, or it, no, it, it does depend on, on whether... Yeah, whether she thinks she has to soften more than harden or harden more than soften, it, that could influence mm. who she needs behind her to back that up. See, but well, I, I understand the um, perspective you're talking about, Angela, of potentially trying to make it softer by getting rid of some of the hard breaks. She was a Remainer, remember? She was a Remainer. But at the same time, though, I mean, I think if you, as much as she was a Remainer, looking at Theresa May's kind of more political history, like the immigration go-home vans, like, I mean, sort of a more international approach I personally do not see necessarily reflected in her in her past. And I don't know if that's going to maybe... It depends. Like, so when we're talking about softer, then we might be talking more about the economic aspects and deals of, you know, of, of what's to come rather than some of the other issues that are affected by the... But it's, it's difficult to say. Theresa May's done a really good job of um, rebranding herself from a, rema a remainer to someone that says Brexit means Brexit. Yeah. You know, she's said all the right things 
to kind of appease that. But I'd be incredibly surprised if a Remainer had, had really had a conversion to that level in that space of time. Um, she's the leader of the country and now has to implement the will of the referendum. We get that. Um, but if she was a sceptical Remainer to begin with because she could see the damage that Brexit might do to the economy, to the country, um, presumably she still knows that. So I don't know. It's difficult to say. Rhetoric's one thing, but what's actually going on behind the scenes might be a very different thing. And it's really difficult to tell at the moment. It's, it really it is chaotic. Yeah. Which actually, yeah, I, I kind of want to throw it out, I guess, to our viewers um, who are watching or listening, wherever they are as well. Like, how, how, how do you feel about it? I mean, as Craig pointed out, this is, uh, we've had two referendums now. Everything's kind of in turmoil, all basically off the back of what is essentially infighting or um, disagreements within the Tory party. Mm-hmm. And, and we just have this thing where the entire country is basically in chaos, all because of some people trying to make a little power grab here and a little power grab there. Uh, how do you feel about it? We want to see down in the comments so we can hear your thoughts about it as well. Um, yeah, but, okay, I guess coming back to what you're saying, I guess the, the, the alternative approach. I mean, do you think, do you think we're going to start to see a more softening approach after this election? I honestly do not know. I have, I, because it, it's as we say, this is a result of a schism within the, the Tory party that David Cameron thought he could quash by having the EU referendum. He took the gamble and he lost. And as a result of that being a gamble that he didn't think he would lose, there was no plan. There has never been any plan. Mm. So it's re- it really is sort of impossible to get any sense of where any of this is going, given that Article 50 has only just been triggered as well, so negotiations are only formally beginning. Um, so we don't really understand the nature of it yet. It's all guesswork. It's all speculation. And I, I actually I don't know how... Um, how helpful it is because I genuinely don't know. Uh, you know, there's no other way to say that. I don't know, but I, but I, what I do know is that this is going to be an absolutely massive, dramatic change for the course of the United Kingdom. Regardless, you know, there's going to be big, big changes ahead. What I would think is it's really up to the people now to take some of that responsibility on and realise that it's up to every single one of you to play your part in shaping it and in, in the direction that it moves in. It's not just about politicians. So. You know, I know a lot of people are like, oh, general election, God's sake, another referendum, and oh, I, I love elections, I think it's great. Do you know, get a buzz when you go to the polling booth and you cast your vote and you know that you've played a part in your democracy. These are amazing times, amazing constitutional times that nobody could have predicted when I was a kid, for example. Even 10 years ago, you couldn't have seen this situation. You can actually become active and play a part in that. You can try and change... Um, the course of things and if the first Scottish independence referendum showed anything it showed that people can do that grassroots movement can make a big big difference and we're still seeing the repercussions of that today so yeah I'm, I'm sort of like yeah this is this is traumatic there's a lot of turmoil but you can you can choose to be kind of like really put out by that or you can choose to embrace it a wee bit I think it's like it's like um, reality TV for political geeks you know, it's like Big Brother and the X Factor. You get to decide who stays and who goes and all of that kind of stuff. I'm right into it. Mm. Give me my wee pencil. And maybe as a woman as well, I like going to the polling booth knowing, you know, there was a time when mm. we couldn't do this. Now we can do it. I always make sure to put a nice wee jacket on and go to the polling booth. Are you now advocating that when they do have the leaders debate, we all get to phone in and vote for our, our favourite? Oh, I think, I've said before, I think we should have, like, um, water balloon 
you know, the audience should get warbling and you can throw them at people when they start talking over each other. And yeah, we were talking about the idea of giving people 140, on Twitter this week, 140 seconds to answer the question. <laughs> and they can answer with memes, things like that. <laughs> yeah, we need to shake up the leaders the yeah. of it. We could even introduce basically a sort of a fact check. You know, let's go back to like, you know, the funhouse days. Like a fact check gunch pool. <laughs> where it's like, where it's like everyone's suspended above and then the second is like they say something incorrect, it's just the chair falls and in they go to the pit into the pit of lies below <laughs> I'd watch that that, that would that. motivate the voters I'm yep. telling you we'd see a surge in democracy okay but speaking about this X Factor like you know just who stays who goes obviously people are going to be um, watching and um, really interested and see who's going to keep their seats and, and I think there's sort of a, a little bit of a divide again between them um, how that conversation is going in Scotland just now versus how it's going um, in England where it's obviously divisive divisive nationalism anyway uh, <laughs> but the point is well, it's still going to be a different conversation and it, it was interesting because after um, people kind of got it together and I was actually very cynical immediately afterwards shock and um, but I was speaking to people down south who I know who vote Labour and they were talking about how like uh, right afterwards on Twitter started trending like campaign for Labour and Labour got a bunch of new members all pro Corbyn side of things rather than sort of playwright um, so as we've kind of historically seen since people have been moving back to the Labour Party to support Corbyn despite everything else like we said the Tories have a majority of 17 and the polls are saying 112 could be their new majority I mean Craig do you think there's any chance that Labour just given how tumultuous everyone has been are they just going to are they just going to turn it around somehow and we're going to have is Jez going to be the next Prime Minister are you asking me to make a political prediction? Yeah, there? go given, for it. Given, given, given the history folks. of political pro political predictions, give it a shot over the past few years and how well all the pundits have turned out on them. <laughs> Get ready to cut this little bit of video out. But but yeah. yeah, I mean, like, do you think is there any chance that Labour are going to turn this round? No, I don't think so. Um, I think at absolute best. He might be in the position of needing some form of coalition, but even that's well on the horizon, and he's already ruled that out, actually. Well, I mean, what he says he'll rule it now compared to after yeah. the votes come it's in. It's OK, is, we're allowed yeah. to change minds. Theresa May does it all the time. Yeah, it's I mean, she, yeah. she ruled out a snap election five times before <laughs> turning <laughs> around. And she voted Remain. <laughs> exactly. I would, I would actually, I'd actually be looking at the Lib Dems, to be honest, and seeing how well they do, because they yeah. seem to be on a, a, a bit of a forward footing at the moment. Yeah. yeah, the Lib Dems are the interesting one because the Lib Dems are the only party that are really strongly and unapologetically anti-Brexit. And I know they're, they're hanging it all around the single I market I mean, they were the Greens, but... And, uh, well, it, the, the Lib Dems are definitely getting a lot more of the traction on that, I would mm. say. Um, but they're kind of hanging it around the single market thing because they have to, because mm. the result of the referendum was to leave. But yeah. that's, that's part of a strategy, I would think, to generally move towards a second referendum. But they are, um, you know, there is 48% of the country that voted Remain. And I don't feel like they've had a, a party that's really taken that on in a sort of a proud way, saying, no, we voted Remain, that was the right decision, we have to fight for it, we have to keep fighting for it, because that was a very, very narrow win for Leave. And it was based on, let, you know, remember the, the NHS promises on the side of the bus, for example. You know, there was a lot of falsehoods in that election. It was a very short election campaign. Did people vote in an informed way? You know, you can make all of those arguments are there to be made. The Greens, you know, maybe anti-Brexit, but I don't feel like they've really broken through with that in the way that the Lib Dems yeah. have been able to. And I think that, that, that we might see, you know, <clears throat> the, the Lib Dems start to 
kind of repair some of the image damage that they had from the coalition government with the Conservatives because people feel so strongly, some of the, the Remainers feel so strongly about it that it would absolutely overtake any previous concerns that they might have had about policy issues and all the rest of it. They see this as like, I suppose Brexit is kind of like um, indirect for people in England and Wales that haven't just had a big vote like we had up here. We've got our own constitutional issues going on as well as Brexit, but down there, this must be like, you know, if you imagine being a Remainer, then I, c I could imagine being pretty devastated with the way that things have turned out and feeling really motivated by the kind of stuff that we're hearing from Tim Farron. So I think it's one to watch. But yeah. Jeremy Corbyn was interesting today. We were commenting in the office about how much more sort of populist and anti-establishment his speech was today. So I wonder whether they're, they're starting to realise that, mm. that, that that's the route that they have to go down. They were talking about the media establishment and obviously the Tory establishment, that, that kind of thing, tax they were talking about. Um, so they're, they're very much trying to tap into that. Now the question is, is it too late or can they claw something back? Actually, my impression from that and from a few of Corbyn's other comments in the last couple of days, when you see him talking about being anti-establishment and focusing that both on... Westminster and on Brussels, I think Labour are starting to starting to build the foundations of a post-Brexit campaign. Yeah. I think they're look they're playing the long game on this. They they know they can't stop Brexit, they're just gonna take it mm -hmm. and then build on, on whatever comes after that. Though mm -hmm. mm. no, um it's it's interesting, like <laughs> what the one of the things I saw was obviously his um sort of quote of like, you know, I don't play by the rules, which I thought was mm. quite fun. But um the, there is like that 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 issue of of during the during the EU referendum, like basically people in positions of power, essentially establishment figures, managed to do a very good job of convincing people that they were in fact anti-establishment. Like looking at Nigel Farage, given the fact that he was like what privately educated, very wealthy guy, taking the position of oh, I'm just a working class bloke yeah. in the pub with a pint working and everything in the else. Finance industry as well. Yeah, and I could see why um, Corbyn would want to turn around and start using that language, given that he probably actually is more of an anti-establishment figure as well. Like historically, he was never necessarily following. Um, the, the line of the whips and the Labour Party, he's always kind of been a bit of an outside figure in that sense. Um, I guess it makes sense that he'd want to move down that um, it's route. It's taken a long time though. It has taken a long time. They yeah. should have been a bit more on board with the, with the mood of the nation before that. But um, but it, it just it feels to me like there's so many different issues going on all at the same time, all in parallel to each other. We've got the Labour thing, uh, the, the, the relationship between Labour and Brexit and Labour and the working class and then you've got where the Lib Dems now fit into this new scenario, what's really going to happen with the Tories plus their own internal fight. You've got all of this going on. This is before you even get to the issues in Scotland and the place that no one talks about apparently, Northern Ireland, what mm. it might mean for them and how people mm. there feel about what's going on. Um, there's just so many different things in the pot of this general election actually. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's very exciting. But um, but there's just so much at stake. Yeah, in a way, I think um, I think there's going to be an interesting thing. Interesting thing where later on we're going to look back at this as the general election that wasn't a general election. Yeah. Because we're not voting necessarily for parties, and we're not necessarily voting even for policies. Which is a tragedy, really, yeah. when you yeah. consider the standard of living at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. But it, well, if anything, that, that actually does tie in, I think, because actually what people are essentially voting for right now, I feel, is going to be more of an ideological approach. Yeah. Um, people are going to be sort of backing the route towards Brexit that they're taking. Yeah. People are going to be backing, thinking what they're doing to secure a stronger mandate for independence in Scotland or uh, a mandate to remain in the Union. Like, people are going to be going into this election 
probably barely looking at manifestos, but just working off of those sort of uh, ideological points um, that have been coming up over and over. And if we want to do, if we want to start looking a little bit more at Scotland, and I agree, Northern Ireland is something that's been horrendously overlooked mm. for, from the beginning. But that's again yeah. not necessarily surprising as much as it is depressing. They've already had an election this year as well. They're going into But but uh, like looking at Scotland just now, um, as much as people are saying, oh, let's not make this general election about independence. Let's not make it about independence. Every party is. Like, they're all doing it. Um, I think the SNP's just given into that more. Yeah, yeah I, I think so too. It has to be kind of, um, people. The, these are the lines that people are going to argue over, so just argue them like hell. Yeah, seems to be the, the, the Tories are doing it, um, Labour are doing it, I assume the Lib Dems are doing it, although I haven't seen anything from them in the last couple of days, but that's just because I've been away, not because I've necessarily <laughs> been quiet. Um, <laughs> sorry, Lib Dems. Um, but... There, there is an argument, and I think there's, there's going to be this interesting line drawn with if this vote, if this vote ultimately is about securing Theresa May's right to, to pursue the Brexit that she wants, whether that's a hard or a soft one, if it's about securing that, then Scotland returning a majority of pro-independence MPs is ultimately going to be about securing a mandate to hold a second referendum. And I think it's going to be very hard for Theresa May to argue against that if that's the exact tactic that she's using. What they're going to do is, if the Tories pick up some seats in Scotland and reduce the SNP majority, and remember, the SNP's majority is is, is pretty unprecedented. Fifty six mm, yeah. out of fifty nine MPs in that twenty fifteen surge was, ex- you know, I remember people talking about the the possibility that that could happen and thinking, there's no way that's ever going to happen. I'll put them in like the mid to late thirties or yeah. something. You know, you just couldn't see it. It was an incredible mm. night. If you remember that, I'm sure you do. Um, so I think that they're just going to try and play the idea of a, even a, a drop in SNP support as a drop in support for a referendum as as muddy in the waters about what, what it is that people really want in Scotland. And we can argue till the cows come home about whether that's true or not, whether it actually reflects that. Um, but that's certainly how, the to- well, certainly how Ruth Davidson, I think, will right. argue. For it. So they're just looking for enough of an increase in their support to allow them to do that in terms mm. of ScotRef. I saw a tweet um, this afternoon that said uh, if the SNP won the election but Nicola Sturgeon lost her car keys, uh, Theresa May would declare it a defeat. Yeah. <laughs> the th- the, it's, it's, it's very tricky for the SNP because it doesn't matter whether you're, you're still returning 50 MPs, it's still ridiculously high majority. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. It still would constitute a drop. And that is, that is by definition, a negative. You have lost something, you've lost support. So it's that that's it's going to be so hard for them to return. I think fifty six MPs, but mm. we could be wrong. I mean, we could see a total Tory wipeout in Scotland. Remember, in the twenty fifteen general election, I think they actually returned their lowest share of the vote in yep. something like since that's nineteen true. early nineteen something or other. Um, so the the support for the Tories in Scotland is not quite all it seems uh, when you start to dig down into the data. So who knows? But. But I think we're, we're fighting this along much clearer constitutional lines in the 2015 general election. And the thing that strikes me is that in the 2015 election, yesers were motivated to go out and vote. They, were, they, were, they, were, they sort of needed something to put all of that energy into. They did that in the general election. You had a lot of people furious with Labour, with the Labour Party, working class people that wanted to punish Labour, I think. And they, they did that. Now, this time, I think you're going to have more unionist voters going out to vote because it's going to be an indirect issue. So mm. that maybe could change things. And I wonder whether the working class kind of vote 
that might lean a little bit more towards leave than remain. I wonder whether they're the ones that might start to feel a little bit more disillusioned with everything that's going on. And they would tend to be yes fours. Mm. And so, yeah. But would they vote Tory? No, they just might not vote. They might not vote. That's yeah. what I, th mm. I think it's more of a... What yes might need to worry about more is, is people not coming out. Yeah. I think the unionists yeah. might be more motivated to go out than they would have been in 2015. And keep in mind in 2015 as well, the Tories hadn't necessarily established themselves, established themselves as the party of the union. They've taken a lot of support from Labour in that sense, since Labour kind of weren't as strong on it to begin with, and then by the time they had come round to like, the whole stronger together motive, it was kind of too late. Like The Tories had already hooven up a lot of that support and uh, arguably are keeping it. So, yeah, I think in 2015, into this next election it will be different and I think in a lot of ways it will be a battle between the SNP and the Tories and that's already the way it's being framed in, totally. in Scotland by the SNP probably deliberately but also probably correctly in this in this sense. If the Tories so lose all their MPs then they won't be able to put a Scottish MP in control of the Scotland office mm -hmm. which means that they can't have someone representing Scotland in their government and if they can't represent Scotland how can Theresa May go to the EU and say that she's representing Britain. Mm -hmm. That'll put her in a very difficult position. David Mundell was a close um, a close one as well. There's a few in the kind of narrow seats where, the th yeah. where it, it could get quite interesting. Mundell also historically attracts a lot of funding at his campaigns for that reason. They, they, yeah. they like to have him there. But I think the SNP will be ploughing everything that they have into those kind of kinds of constituencies as well. But you know, the, what, one of the things that might come back into play a little bit more here as well because this is um, this is really a, a question of has has Scotland uh, kind of moved on from the image of the Tories that it's carried for so long? Have the Tories managed to rebrand themselves effectively now in Scotland as the party that represents something else enough to the point where people will vote for them in a significant way? In order to keep the SNP as it is just now out, superficially, uh, th yes. That, that's an interesting. Culturally, mm. that's really yeah. interesting. I'd say superficially, they're doing quite a good job of that. They have a lot of good sort of PR behind them. Ruth Davidson does generally come across as sort of personable and likable and quite nice. But that's that's been but questioned recently the, with yes, things like the rape clause. Exactly. And and I see a lot more people talking about. Tory policies in a very modern way, you know, the kind of thing that I remember uh, people talking about when I was a kid that you associated with with the Thatcher kind of yeah. era. People are now talking about life in those same terms again. And I don't know whether it's it's kind of stoking up something else in a, a more domestic kind of sense. Take the constitutional side out of it. I mean, we've had, we've had a couple of people write actually for Common Space in the last couple of days since the election was called. And it struck me how they were not focused on the constitutional stuff. They were they were talking about the issues that are affecting people right now. We had a really good piece from Fiona Robertson, um, you know, and her and her um, perspective was basically look if you vote if you vote Tory, it doesn't matter what your reasoning is, it doesn't matter about constitution, forget all of that. If you vote Tory, you are giving a vote to people who are helping to kill me because she's disabled. And she cited a lot of evidence for people that have that have died. You know, deaths that seem to be attributable to the Tories' benefits policies.
to their getting people back into work policies that are pulling disabled people off of benefits when they're in no position to work and it's killing it's literally killing them it's causing so much stresses and strains on their lives and and she was saying that so you know that that's just the figures they know about that given the work that she does as an activist as an advocate she's pretty sure that, that the figure is higher than that and they don't get counted they get put down as other things and this was a piece of someone who's absolutely terrified you can see, you can feel it coming out of those words that if you've if, that it's desperation if you vote that way then then that that nobody cares about us we don't get a voice and they don't even notice when we die and so that they're you know and we've had other stuff coming in that's along the same sort of tone is people saying you need to think about the policies you need to think about what the Tories are actually going to do to your jobs to your standard of living to all of these things because you're going to pay for it if you vote for them over a Brexit thing or over an Indiref thing. So I, th I wonder whether that, in Scotland, whether that might start to gain any traction. Yeah, and... How much are people still scared of the Tories up here? I don't know. I mean, they have basically been rebranded as the Ruth Davidson party and sort of moving away from a little bit of that brand. But the rebate clause did not make Ruth Davidson no. look good at all. And under the first bit of pressure... Ruth Davidson didn't handle it well. She hid behind her spokesperson mm. to begin with. She, she was refusing to do interviews. She was backing the, the UK government on this, this barbaric rape clause. Um, she didn't handle the pressure well. And she has had an easy ride from the media in Scotland because of the, the, the kind of general Scottish anti-Tory mentality. The media has tended to think the Tories aren't really a threat in Scotland because nobody votes for them. So you can sort of, they can be kind of like the joke party or the, you know, they have a nice leader party. Annabel Goldie got that kind of yeah. treatment as well, do you remember? So she's got an easy ride. Now they're the official opposition and they're starting to get more scrutiny. And I don't think that Ruth Davidson handles it well. Actually, she comes across as quite aggressive. And the Scottish Parliament snapping at Nicola Sturgeon to sit down when she was on Question Time the other mm. week. And what was it? She, she said, for God's sake, love, to one of the... Um, the the Labour um, female MPs, you know, these things are not in line with the, all of these wonderful progressive Tory uh, values that Ruth Davidson claims to have, despite the fact that she's a Tory. The, the, the rape clause being the most serious example yeah. of that contradiction, yeah. yeah. And even, so, even today as well, with the demo outside of the Parliament, yeah. she was the only political leader who wasn't there. Like just it no doesn't show. look good, and no. she, can't, she can't put a funny PR face on that. No. So I think if you get, you know, if you, you do start to get some real scrutiny of the Tories, and we are doing that, you know, I can't speak for the National, but I noticed that the National did not give Ruth Davidson an easy ride when she hid behind the spokesperson. No. And the common space policy has been the same, you know, we, we've altered that quite recently. I have noticed time and again that the Scottish Tories tend to um, bluff or just manage to fob us off on certain questions. And I thought, you know what, you keep doing that then that's going to be the story. If you don't want to answer the question, then that's going to be the story until you start answering some questions. Because at the moment, the Tories are just controlling the way that they want media coverage to go for them in Scotland. And I don't think that they've been getting enough of a, of a pushback on that. If you're going to be the opposition, you can hold the government to account, but you also need to be held to account. You're elected as well. What are you going to do that's better? So I think we need to see a wee bit more of that. To round back up to a UK level, I, I like the, the attitude that's been starting to develop in the press uh, to do with the potential for leaders' debates in the general election mm. when Theresa May said she wasn't going to be involved in them and at least two broadcasters you know, hinted that they were open to empty chairing if, mm -hmm. if, if need be. 
Um, and I, I quite like it when journalists have, have the, yeah. the, the attitude. I think if you, it's up to them to, con to, to set the, the, uh, the, the playing field for the debate, and it's up to the politicians to, uh, to go on to that. Absolutely, yeah. and that, that would play so well into Jeremy Corbyn's sort of anti-establishment yeah. mm -hmm. um, thing right now, if Fusa May actually did that and then was empty-chaired. But I agree, I think she should be empty-chaired if she refuses to turn up. She wants to be Prime Minister again, but she wants to be the Prime Minister. You can't just refuse to engage with the public. It's appalling. Yeah, there, was, there was definitely a really weird concern, like right at the very start when she said um, there won't be TV debates, as if she could decide that for a start. But mm -hmm. the number of it was just picked up. It was like, oh well, there's not going to be any TV debates this time. As if she got to make yeah. that decision, like, like, like you say, just given an easy ride. It wasn't even questioned. As if, hang on, is that your call to make? Yeah. And you know what? The thing is, the TV debates, like, there's a lot of argument about whether or not they're even useful when it comes to politics. Yeah. They they That's turn into true. a rammy a lot of the time. Yeah. It's just people screaming at one another. It, it becomes about like good one-liners and and zingers rather than like really getting into like party policy. But at the same time, it's not. Prime Minister's decision to make about whether or not they go ahead. Yeah. If those debates are called, uh, in this case, like she has the, 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 the choice to either go or be empty chaired. Like she doesn't get to make that call. That's down to the broadcasters and down to the viewing public as well if they want to tune into that. It's a really awful reflection on the broadcasters if they don't go ahead with these debates now. Because we all know that they've asked yeah. people to take part in them. I think mm. they have to go ahead with them. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's appalling to me. Absolutely, you know, incredible arrogance to to just refuse to, to do it, or to demand the format that it takes if you're going to do it. Uh, it shows how, how out of touch I think that, that type of establishment thing is, you know. People like that, people in these positions are used to getting things their way, that's the truth of it. Mm. But yeah, I'm, I'm all for the empty chair and go for it. Yeah, same, I'd like, I'd like to see that. Okay, we're starting to come into the last sort of five to six minutes, seven minutes of the show. Um, so there was one thing I did want to bring up, which is still election-related, but we're going to take the focus a little bit off the toys, which is um, as you bring it on to Tim Farron. So if we're talking about the Lib Dems, as we did earlier on, and how they could be um, potentially this like resurgent force again, even though Tim Farron has said he would go back into coalition with the Tories, which would undo all of that, but that aside, um, there was this whole thing which broke out online, which actually kind of really annoyed me, relating to Tim Farron's um, apparent approach to homosexuality, or about whether or not it was a sin, and him kind of like refusing to answer whether or not that was the case. And this frustrated me a lot, but not necessarily in the way that people necessarily might expect, because what I actually saw was you, people essentially using the LGBT community as a stick to beat Tim Farron with, rather than people who've necessarily been kind of like championing mm. equal marriage this entire time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really, I'm very frustrated whenever I see this happen, which is basically like using a group, like an oppressed minority or whatever, to tackle a political opponent because they're a political opponent, rather than because the view that they might have is actually one that should be tackled in the first place. And and the sort of I think best example of this was the Tories turned around and said, or rather the LGBT conservative group online um, turned around and said that they were the true party of equality, like the Tory party, and that obviously annoyed me as well. Uh, because like, if you look... <laughs> I'm just going to my rant now, really. <laughs> but it's true. There's an interesting thing of, like, um, the, the Tory party have an awful history when it comes to, like, LGBT equality. I mean, sure, they are the party behind the England and Wales version of the Equal Marriage Bill. But even then, that was still very flawed because it, it basically specifically discriminated against trans people through the spousal veto. And it didn't really give them um, equal inheritance rights to same-sex couples. Um, 
So it wasn't a perfect bill. And actually, there's an interesting thing to do with Tim Farron because people have brought up, and this is where nuance comes into this a lot, as much as Tim Farron is very questionable at what his particular approach to the LGBT community is based on his faith, looking at his actual record in government, there is a degree of nuance to take here because he did, he, did, he, he um, abstained on the equal marriage bill in the final part because it didn't do enough for trans rights while voting it through all the other times, but people pick up on that um, side of it. And actually, Tim Farron is one of the only kind of political leaders in the UK Parliament who's really pushing for scrapping the blood ban and is really pushing for other areas of equality that others aren't. So his personal opinions aside, he actually, fair credit to him, has kind of picked up what people kind of actually want in terms of equality, and he's went forward with it. And I think there should be a bit more of a nuance um, in, in that debate as a result of that. Um, but... Yeah, I don't know. Like, I agree with you. With, I, think yeah. that, I think that there is a lot of nuance to be taken here. Being brought up, uh, I was brought up very strict Catholic, um, and people will know that the Catholic Church has similar views on homosexuality. And um, but it's interesting because you know the, the question put to Tim Farron, I, I, I didn't see this interview. I think it was Channel Four News. But the question of is it a sin? Um, it's very tricky because you know we were. I, I was certainly brought up in a in a sense that you treat everyone as equals. It's not your place to judge anyone. And um, as Catholics would say, love the sin and and uh, sorry, hate the sin and not the sinner. Now I've grown up and I've cast a lot of that stuff aside, particularly when it comes to LGBT issues and attitudes. But the but the idea it's not necessarily that the person, the religious person, deeply feels that someone is committing sin. It's sort of more that it is just within the teachings of the thing that they have they happen to follow. It's there. There's a sort of a nuance even within that sense of it, and um, and I've seen some interesting comments on you know online of people saying that this actually for religious people can be a difficult question to answer, but there's very little tolerance for the idea that that maybe we just need to try and kind of understand the issues at play here rather than just jumping to say everybody's. Uh, wrong, everybody's terrible. If you understand how the psychology works behind something, you've got a much better shot at changing it. And that seems to me like a really obvious thing to say. You know, if you understand why someone thinks and acts the way that they do, then you might have a shot at changing it. We don't seem to do that anymore. We seem to just start screaming at people. And I don't know that that's helpful. And then you take into the fact that, you know, to me, the, the fact that he's managed to separate a religious teaching from his political activity says a lot to me about um, the psychology that's going on behind all of that stuff. It's a lot more complicated than mm. just good, bad, evil, etc. And I don't think that, that, that online discourse really helps get to that. As I say, I've, I was brought up Catholic and I've cast a lot of that stuff aside, but I hate it, I really, really hate it when I see people just sort of down on religious people as a whole. I still know a lot of religious people. I have religious family. They're not bad people. Religion is a structure. It creates ways of thinking. It creates conditioning. And it does it through things like fear. You've heard of things like the Catholic guilt. Mm -hmm. It terrifies people into thinking for themselves. So actually changing your views about LGBT issues or abortion or anything like that can be a very difficult thing to do because it's actually psychologically very traumatic for people to break out of those structures that have been embedded. So screaming at someone that they're wrong and their religious, religion is stupid, just a tip, it's probably not going to work. You need a better approach. 
And that's the thing with the firing thing, that there were, it, all within that was bundled up for me, a lot of these issues. And trying to, do, to talk about any of it on Twitter or on Facebook, you can't get to the heart of it without someone hating you for saying something that you didn't mean to be offensive. But this is a, and this is what I mean about like, uh, using the LGBT community as the stick to beat Tim Farron yeah. with, is because you know I, I don't think it's okay to hold the opinion that gay sex is a sin. I don't think that's an acceptable thing to hold. Um, although I do understand why people hold it in terms of like their upbringing or their religion. I understand it's it's something that um, someone can be brought up with and it's in their mind as a result. But I don't think it's I don't personally don't think it's an okay position to take in any way. But Tim Farron's actions have kind of backed up that he is at least doing stuff about it. Which is why when it was just like this like thing that was just being beaten against him. I didn't feel like it was people who had actually looked at his record. I didn't feel like it was people who were actually supporting the LGBT community. It was people who just saw a political opponent and a way to take a shot at them. And, and that frustrated me um, a little bit. But um, in terms of like something positive to do with the LGBT community as well, um, the Thai campaign has had something of a success in the Scottish Parliament this week as well, which was that... Um, as voted through at the SNP conference, after much campaigning by the Thai campaign, um, the Scottish government will be establishing a working group, which the Thai campaign will be on. And for those who don't know, the Thai campaign is the Time for Inclusive Education campaign um, to make it mandatory, essentially, that schools will teach about LGBT issues. Um, whereas at the moment, that is not the case. And specifically, if we're going back to the Tories as the party for equality, uh, at their recent um, review into their um, sex and relationship education policy, um, they saw that there was nothing mandatory about teaching LGBT, LGBT issues, and they said it was fit for purpose, for, fit for purpose which it, that clearly is not. So um, Scotland is at least beginning to make a step towards making a, a, a better go of teaching about LGBT issues as a mandatory thing in classrooms to essentially challenge both the stigma, but also to make things easier for LGBT kids who have a disproportionately high rate of um, homelessness, suicide rates, it's just, it's, um, it's, it's, it's not easy to be um, out and in school at the moment, and I think education is absolutely a way to deal with that. So it's that's a positive job thing. Thai campaign. Mm. Thai campaign's done, yeah, really well. And they do it so positively as well. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's like, it looks fun, doesn't it, to get on board with the Thai campaign. It's a really attractive kind of campaign for people. Um, and they do incredible work going around schools as it is, giving assemblies and talks and um, speaking to staff, speaking to kids. Like they, they just have, and it's only been what less than two years, I think, since they actually launched. Yeah. It's not been quite two years yet. Um, so yeah, they've done a like outstanding job, and it's basically two people, Liam and Jordan, Liam Stevenson and Jordan Daly, that are leading that. And neither of the two of them, I think, were, were campaigners before India. I think that's how they got involved in politics. The real testament to what people can achieve. Goes back to what I was saying earlier on. Don't think that just because you're a little person in your living room watching something on the internet that you can't play a role in the bigger picture. You absolutely can. Hmm. Yeah, it's certainly been a, been a far cry from the, the days of the likes of, what was it, Section 38 in the late 90s? Yeah. Section 28, around the 20s, yeah. Which, by the way... Theresa May was very against repealing as well, um, Section 28, which prohibited the teaching of um, anything <laughs> that yeah. would um, discuss That's LGBT issues. Showed my age, that was a big debate when I was in school. Me too, yeah. And on that note, if ever we're giving away their ages, uh, that does bring us to the end of this week's show. So uh, thank you all for tuning in, and thank you to both my guests for joining me today. Thank you. Um, we will be back again next week, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Thursday at 
3 p.m. to discuss everything that happens between now and then. I imagine we're probably going to be talking more about the election and a little bit more about the council elections who've definitely taken a bit of a, a, bit of a shot to the head um, following the snap election call, um, uh, which is very frustrating because the local elections tend to be overlooked a little bit anyway. So, you know, let's, um, let's make a promise that next week we'll talk about the local elections more because um, that's only right. Uh, but yeah, thank you for tuning in. If you do want to, like I say, listen to the podcast of this, you can do it. It's on iTunes to search for Bledder the Giver. That'll bring it up. You can subscribe to us there. And thank you to everyone who commented and shared our video. Sorry for the little technical snafu about halfway through. Uh, but other than that, yep, yeah, Gremlins. We'll see you all next week. Thank you very much for tuning in. Bye. Bye bye.